I do a lot of reading. I like fiction as well as nonfiction. But these days I spend more time reading in preparation for the podcast than anything else. I also listen to a lot of lectures and conversations online. Regardless of which method of taking on linguistic content, it seems to me that the semantic message appears in my mind instantly. As long as I am undistracted, the meaning of the word seems to be directly accessed in real time. I observe that when we read, there is another kind of perception which is occurring at the same time. The form of the letters and the words are also entering into consciousness. Even reading silently, a kind of quiet inner voice is often narrating the prose. Reading aloud, the production of coherent sound accompanies the reader's comprehension. But generally, the semantic part, the meaning of the sentences, is the critical bit. I'm sure you can relate to the occurrence where some kind of distraction or inner thought process takes over the semantics of your mind, but the eyes and inner voice go ahead doggedly down the page without a word of meaning breaking through. Finally, you can read phrases in a foreign language, say Spanish or French, albeit with poor pronunciation, though you might not understand the meaning of what you were reading. So I was reading about reading recently. Jesus, I need another hobby when I came across something new and interesting. I encountered a neurological syndrome that I had not read about before, deep dyslexia. This is a form of acquired dyslexia, that is, dyslexia which occurs following injury to the brain, that seems to demonstrate that we have more than one form of reading, a phonological and a semantic form. That seems reasonable, right? After all, once you are an adept reader, you can take in information from the written page at a faster pace than you would if you had to sound out the words and then obtain the meaning, like you did when you were in elementary school. The interesting thing about deep dyslexics is that they can only read by the semantic method, and this leads to a lot of errors. The other side of the coin are the surface dyslexics who can only read by the phonological method, so they can read but not understand what they are reading. That one, in contrast to deep dyslexia, makes intuitive sense to me. But how could one read by the semantic method alone? Tim Shallis describes deep dyslexia in the book From Neuropsychology to Mental Structure. He writes, quote, It is simplest to begin with a description of the patient in whom the condition was first described, GR. GR had sustained a left parietotemporal bullet wound roughly 20 years before his reading was first systematically analyzed. Nonverbal abilities were demonstrated to be intact, but GR had some comprehension difficulties, and his spontaneous speech was telegrammatic and halting. The basic corpus used to investigate his reading consisted of his responses to 2,000 individually presented words. Two very interesting aspects of his reading performance were noted. The first concerned the errors he made, which were of various types, prime among them, both in number, more than half, and because they are so counterintuitive, were semantic errors where the response had only a semantic relation to the stimulus." Shallus lists some of the reading errors made by GR. GR read the word ill as sick. He read the word bush as tree. He read the word cheer as laugh, and the word bad as liar. This is fascinating. The subject understands the meaning of the word, wants to express that meaning, and does his best to do so. The letters and sounds on the card do not enter into the process. It reminds me of the process we use during normal speech, where we start with the semantics, that is, the meaning we are trying to convey, and produce a suitable word with that meaning. The deep dyslexic has to do this in order to read. Shallus continues, quote, 
The second phenomenon was that the chance of a word being read correctly by GR was greatly affected by a variable other than word frequency or familiarity. This was assumed to be syntactic class. Thus, 46% of nouns were read, but only 16% of adjectives and 6% of verbs. Of 54 function words, closed class items such as prepositions and pronouns, he read only two, unquote. This makes a certain amount of sense. The more concrete words, the nouns are easier to conceptualize semantically. Think of what this would be like. You're a deep dyslexic. You see a word which you recognize the meaning of. Let's say the word is automobile. The concept of what that word means enters into your mind and you produce the word car. You are absolutely correct about the meaning of the word. You are clearly not guessing. But the word car looks nothing at all like the word automobile. You have no access to the phonology. It's like the tip of the tongue phenomenon in language production. We've all experienced that, right? You want a certain word, you have in mind a particular meaning, a semantic representation, and you have a sense of what that word is constructed like. It's phonology, but you can't find the damn word in your lexicon. It really fascinates me to think that the deep dyslexic patient has to come up with a word that goes with the semantics they are reading. So they might see couch and say sofa, see black and say night. It's like if you looked at a picture of, of an object and had to say what it was. It's a piece of furniture that you might just as well call a sofa as a couch. It's a field of darkness that you might just as easily call black or night. This really seems to be how the patients are reading. No wonder it is so much more difficult to come up with verbs. If I show you a still picture of an action, you might make a lot of errors too. Shallis further describes patients that cannot read non-words. That idea is fascinating too, and related to the deep dyslexic syndrome. Consider, for example, the non-word slote, S-L-O-T-E. You wouldn't have any trouble reading it. And if you're familiar with the English language, you would probably notice that this is not a word. If a friend laid this out on a Scrabble board, you'd probably call bullshit. The fact that certain patients with left brain lesions can read words in English but not read non-words in the same manner is perplexing. Deep dyslexics remind me of patients with damage to Broca's area and surrounding tissues, constituting Broca's aphasia. In this syndrome, the patient's speech is slow, labored, and impaired, but the selection of words, especially nouns, is generally intact. Verbs and function words are more of a problem, and they are often missing from speech altogether. There is a chapter on language and aphasias from Principles of Neural Science. The chapter was written by Nina Dronkers, Steven Pinker, and Antonio Damasio. On Broca's aphasia, they write, quote, linking two elements requires keeping the first element in one's working memory until the second is encountered and the two can be joined. This suggests that Broca's area and associated regions may participate in the verbal short-term memory required for sentence comprehension. Recent functional brain imaging studies using PET showed that the level of activation in a subregion of Broca's area increases when a subject has to understand a sentence in which there is a long gap in the middle compared with the level when the subject must understand similar sentences with shorter gaps in the middle. The idea that Broca's area is, is related to short-term working memory fits with other findings. Working memory is thought to have a phonological loop consisting of a transient memory store for phonological information and a rehearsal process." Unquote. They go on to say, quote, the structures usually damaged in Broca's aphasia and in Broca area aphasia may be part of a neural network involved in both the assembly of phonemes into words and the assembly of words into sentences. This network is thought to be concerned with re relational aspects of language, which include the grammatical structure of sentences and the proper use of grammatical vocabulary and verbs, unquote. 
So generally speaking, patients with Broca's aphasia have conserved capacity with regard to semantics, the meanings of words, especially nouns, just like the deep dyslexics. I was really intrigued by a hypothesis discussed in Chalice's book that deep dyslexics might be reading with the right hemisphere. This seems plausible given that damage to the left hemisphere makes such a strategy necessary. Unfortunately for the hypothesis, Chalice describes studies that strongly undermine the idea. Chalice writes, quote, As a final argument, which is apparently clinching, Patterson and Besner have directly compared test performance levels in deep dyslexics with those in the supposed analog, the split-brain right hemisphere patient. The most impressive comparison consists of the visual version of the Peabody word matching, word picture matching test, using written words. Their deep dyslexic patients, DE and PW, performed far better than NG and LB, split-brain patients reported by Zydell. Yet NG and LB are known to produce the best right hemisphere performance of 40 or so split-brain patients tested, except for two in whom language lateralization may well have shifted in early childhood due to early brain damage. The performance of NG and LB therefore represents the very best that could be expected from the isolated right hemisphere, yet it is still considerably inferior to that of the deep dyslexic patients studied under Patterson and Besner." Unquote. Okay, so the right hemisphere of normal subjects can be assumed to be very severely dyslexic. That's too bad. It was a nifty hypothesis. Tim Chalice's book explores the capacity to dissociate individual cognitive capacities that are related. The idea is that certain clusters of symptoms are known to occur with damage to brain areas in the left hemisphere, but sometimes those symptoms occur in isolation. That is the case with deep dyslexia, as opposed to surface dyslexia. The implication is that there are separate modules which we use to read using the phonological and the semantic methods. Chalice writes, quote, The fundamental common thread running through all cognitive neuropsychological theorizing about the acquired dyslexics is that there are alternative functionally distinct procedures for reading words and that one of these allows information to reach semantic systems without phonological mediation. The earliest modern advocates of the two-root position were Marshall and Newcomb who were motivated by the neuropsychological evidence, and certainly when they wrote, single-root positions such as that of Rubinstein, Lewis, and Rubinstein were the most widely believed. While it might prove possible to explain the characteristics of any individual central dyslexic syndrome without assuming more than a single type of reading process, it would be an extremely daunting task to attempt to explain the whole gamut of central dyslexic disorders in this way. The variety of dissociations that exist would have to be explained, no one, to my knowledge, has even attempted it. The distinction between phonological and semantic routes in reading was not produced as a post hoc account of the neuropsychological evidence. The patients who fit well the characterization of reading by a phonological route alone were first described after the theory was current. The same applies to demonstrations that similar patterns of symptoms can occur as a result of interruptions at different stages of one of the routes. Indeed, the existence of a set of such sub-syndromes fitting the surface-slash-semantic-dyslexic reading pattern, was specifically predicted before they were discovered." Unquote. In episode 15 on meaning, I argued against Christoph Koch's suggestion that qualia are symbols. I claim that conscious contents are always meaningful, that qualia are meanings. Koch has written about the meaning of conscious contents, too. Come to think of it, I don't think my disagreement with him is ultimately a substantive one, Rather, I am critical of his choice of characterization. Symbols are syntactic, whereas meanings are semantic. 
the syntax might symbolize the semantic, but it's a bit misleading to say that the semantics symbolize the syntax. For example, a noun in English is an arbitrary phonetic symbol for the thing to which it refers. When we read or hear the word, it brings to mind the meaning. We are not hung up on the sound of the word or how it is spelled. We are concerned with its meaning. It would be pretty weird to suggest the reverse, that the thing in the world is a symbol of the word we use in English. Wasn't it Lao Tzu who said something like, the name is not the thing named? Recall that Koch wrote in The Quest for Consciousness, quote, Given the large number of discrete attributes that make up any one percept, and the even larger number of relevant relationships among them, phenomenal feelings have evolved to deal with the attendant complexities of handling all of this information in real time. Qualia are potent symbolic representations of a fiendish amount of simultaneous information associated with any one percept, its meaning. Unquote. While I disagree with the phrase, qualia are potent symbolic representations, I think we are pretty well in agreement. The point is that the thing out there in the world is not accessible by the brain. The brain only has incoming action potentials which it can compare and contrast and tamper with to produce qualia. I suggest that the path is roughly stimulus, the external world, symbol, action potentials, meaning, the experienced qualia. So what is the relationship between the qualia and the stimulus out there in the world? I would say that the qualia are the meanings, to me, of the stimuli. It's not an objective meaning. Things don't have objective meanings. I'm pretty sure that conferring meaning upon stimuli is the essential function of consciousness. This means good to eat. That means dangerous predator, and so on. When you watch a nature documentary, who is the protagonist? The lion or the gazelle? To the lion, the gazelle means good to eat. To the gazelle, the lion means dangerous predator. Objectively, these descriptions of the situation don't work. There is only a set of physical processes. One configuration of matter and energy out there on the savanna is converted into a new configuration. No narrative, no mystery, no value, no meaning. With regard to the two different kinds of reading that can be dissociated in specific types of acquired dyslexia, it seems that we have two different kinds of qualia particular to reading, one which is semantic and another which is phonological. When we read the passages of the book in front of us, we have direct access to both. In other words, we see the form of the words, the letters that spell them, the arrangement of the phonemes, and at the same time we sense the meaning. Which comes first? They essentially arrive at the same time. This is what changes when we become truly fluent in reading a foreign language. When we are learning, there is a noticeable translation step from the form of the word, which is to say its phonology, to the meaning of the word, its semantics. In the case of a foreign language, it is easy to imagine being able to read the words yet not be able to comprehend their meaning. What is truly astonishing to me is to imagine being able to read the meaning of the word without being able to see its phonetic construction. In a sense, it is analogous to blindsight, a kind of blind reading. What is it like to be a deep dyslexic? What would you see on the card presented to you by a researcher in the lab? A string of characters is written on the card. You look at the string, and if you don't know what the word means, it just looks like a senseless mashup of symbols. For those of us without this kind of brain damage, we can read the symbols anyway, whether they show us a familiar word or not. We just sound it out according to the application of the rules of English phonics. We might be wrong in the word's pronunciation. After all, English is full of inconsistencies, but we can at least give it the old college try. Apparently, there are patients with central dyslexia for whom this is not on the menu. I can conceive of a written language that might operate without a phonological root. Suppose the spoken English 
language is exactly as we know it, but the written language is completely different. Each word is written as a string of ten zeros and ones. They all have exactly the same length. And the relationship between the exact string of zeros and ones for each word was assigned arbitrarily. There is no way to sound out a word or to guess it based on other words that you know. Nevertheless, you could learn these ten-digit strings in elementary school, build a vocabulary, read them, and write them. You'd look at one of these words and either know it or not. Thus, like the central dyslexic, there would be words that you simply can't read. And notice this, too. When you make errors in reading, they might be of the semantic type. You might see the word mighty and read it as the word strong, because the meaning is very similar and there's not a clue in the sequence of zeros and ones to tell you what the word should sound like. Alternatively, you might accidentally give the wrong word by substituting a zero for a one or a one for a zero somewhere in the sequence. All told, that is the biggest problem with this idea of a written language. And what about typos? At least with English or any other phonetically written language, you can get by with little misprints without missing the author's intention. Have you noticed that if you say a common word a whole bunch of times in a row, it begins to sound strange and new? It's as if you disentangle the phonetic sound of the word from the semantic meaning that it calls to mind. It seems like a new and unfamiliar word in that moment. Perhaps the semantic system becomes somehow exhausted by this exercise, and we are just left with the raw sound of the word being spoken. Normally, we don't really hear the way the word sounds. It's too mixed up with the meaning that it calls into mind. So now, by means of this trick, we can hear the word as it might sound to a foreigner. In his book, Shallus describes a model with two different routes for reading, the phonological route and the semantic route. I think this is in agreement with my observations from the introduction of this episode. I have a hypothesis. I don't know if it's been tested. It probably has by now. My hypothesis is that the semantic route is more limited than the phonological route. This would account with what I was saying just now about repeating a word over and over and then experience it as something novel. It would also make sense of the surprising fact that normal people can write words that are being dictated to them at the same time as they are reading out loud for meaning. My guess would be that we only have a certain bandwidth for meaning, the semantic root, but we can carry out a rote task that involves the phonological root as long as we do not understand what it is saying. It's not unlike having a conversation while walking. The walking doesn't take up semantic space, it just fades into the background. What comes to mind is the so-called cocktail party effect. This is the capacity to listen selectively to one stream of auditory information and filter out all the rest of the sound in a noisy environment. If you think about it, this is a remarkable capacity. You can have a conversation with one person in a sea of other people having other conversations, but you can't follow multiple simultaneous streams of conversation. At least I can't. I'll often find that I've been listening to a podcast in my ears the whole time I've been reading an email or doing something else that requires my attention. It's as if the sound in my ears just disappears into the background. I can't listen to the conversation in my headphones and read for meaning at the same time. I think true semantics, true meaning, is what consciousness does. My framework, the temporally integrated causality landscape, is based upon the premise that meaning is the thing which needs to be explained by a theory of consciousness. The universe is composed of stuff and its motion. The stuff interacts with other stuff according to implicit laws. Electromagnetic waves bounce off of stuff, stuff reacts with other stuff. The laws of the universe, the forces and charges and all the rest determine a kind of syntax. But semantics is an altogether different animal. Meaning cannot be a characteristic of stuff. According to my framework, semantics is enabled by nesting a set of causal structures within a larger causal structure by means of highly integrated networks of neurons. 
from the point of view of the larger integrated structure of causality, the subsystems within it have meaning. This is only true because they have relationships to one another. Qualia are the realization of those relationships. With this framing, both phonological and semantic reading produce meaningful events in consciousness. The phonological is the meaning of the arrangement of characters on the page in terms of sound. What sound those characters symbolize. This is the little voice that vocalizes the word in the mind as it is read. The letters on the page mean this sound in the mind. The semantic is the meaning of the word as a symbol of some idea or thing. This is the cognitive concept that is called into the mind. Thus, both the phonological and semantic roots in reading produce meaningful conscious content. Consciousness is composed of nothing but meaning. In the comparison of that meaning to reality, how often must we be in error?